This is Mackenzie Milton. This is Steve Levy from ESPN. And you're listening to One Night Stand. And you're listening to One Night Stand. One Night Stand. Hey, c'est condition ça qui t'est passé. Just One Night Stand. Avant toute bagaille t'est commencé. One Night Stand. This is One Night Stand. Presented by First Watch, the official breakfast and lunch sponsor of One Night Stand. Check out their fall menu. Me and Moo just had lunch there the other day. Had a little carrot crush juice. Very nice. The pumpkin pancake breakfast, also really good. And uh, I know Moo, Moo did the two for Moo or the two for you. You get half sandwich, half salad, or a cup of soup. Great deal. So check out First Watch, our official breakfast and lunch sponsor. What up, night fans? It's Wednesday, October 7th. On today's show, we dive into the Tulsa game. We got a lot to unfold there. Uh, Dylan Gabriel, some good stuff. Marlon, J-Flash, a lot of penalties. Uh, we talk about the turnovers, the rain, the not scoring in the second half. Lots of stuff to unravel. We also have squints on to get a more analytical opinion on everything. Also, we talked to legendary public address announcer Eric Kohler. Two decades as the official voice of UCF football, basketball, and baseball. Great interview. Good to talk to him. Good to hear he's doing well. Like always, we have Money Moves Picks, Moves Mailbag, and also our first watch, Fresh Take of the Week winner. Speaking of, I'm here with... Money Moo, UCF stormed out of the gates to a quick 16-0 lead over Tulsa, fueled by three Golden Hurricane turnovers in the first quarter. Running back Otis Anderson blew by defenders, and Cole Schneider rumbled, bumbled, and stumbled into the end zone for his first career touchdown. What? Some questioned the Knights' forecast to head into the locker room with timeouts in their pocket. The offense dissipated in the second half, and Tulsa took advantage on their way to an incredible upset of the Knights, 34-26, their first home loss in almost four years. I see you stuck with the weather theme there. Way to go. Uh, speaking of weather, don't be a fair weather fan, so I'm just going to start off with this. Do not bash the athletes, okay? They're humans, one, they make mistakes, two, and three, they're not professionals. And right now, because of COVID, they're sacrificing their entire lives pretty much just for our entertainment, guys. Okay? Just so we can, like, so we can sit there and watch and, and, and tweet and type out stuff to people and get upset about it. But, like, these people, like, they can't go out. They can't do anything because they can't get COVID. So just be thankful right now that we even have football. And do not bash our players on Twitter, guys. These are kids. Come on. We're supposed to be adults. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with it being a 7:30 game, you know, with all the penalties, timeouts, play reviews. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I watch college football, I sit down on the couch at noon and I don't really get up until, well, until our game was over yeah. at close to midnight. So you got to think that it was a little bit of uh, maybe some seltzers talking, some beers talking. And you but know that's so really no excuse. You should not look. I I say some dumb stuff. I, this is for people new here. I I don't know why anyone's surprised that I was calling for hype to be fired. That's what I do every time we do something bad. Okay, this is not new. Sorry, um, but I will never talk down to the players. I've never said any. The last time I said anything about a player 
slightly negative. I think I said KZ had small hands like four years ago, and that was it. These guys are sacrificing for our entertainment, okay? If you want to come after someone, go after the coach because they get paid to do it, okay? That's their job, and they got to take the heat too. It's also classic UCF props. For as long as I've known you, it's always Fire George, Fire Dawkins. Dawkins, Hey, Fire George, I I think I was right with Fire George. So I started off hot on the firing thing. I started the Fire George petition after the Furman game, and I think I did pretty well on that one. I never said to fire Frost either. But look, that being said, guys, we can still win the conference. We still control our destiny, and we can still probably get to an NY6 game. It's not completely in our control, but we can win the rest of our games and at the bare minimum play at Tulsa for the conference championship, get revenge on the last like five years where we've lost to them, and everything will probably be okay. Okay? So there are definitely it's definitely not all negative. Yeah, and you know, Tulsa could lose twice and we could host the conference championship game, but kind of getting out ahead of myself there. But yeah, like I said, I said what I said. Um sorry I care. I don't know what you want me to say. Are you apologizing for any of your comments? No, I meant what I said at the time, 100%. I tweet with emotion. Do I want hypo fired? No, that is not going to solve anything. But did I mean it at the time? Absolutely. I mean, there's no excuse. It's a 3-9 Tulsa team last year. This is not on the road. This is not a two-point loss or three-point loss like our three losses last year. This is at home and... We've been outscored by Tulsa 6-39 to in the last two second halves. It's unexcusable. His inability to adjust is terrible. But look, I say these things about him because I want him to do better. I know he can do better. He can do better for our players, better for our fans. And it's a learning experience. The criticism should be, po- it should be helpful to him. We can do better than this, and we're not out of anything. So there's no reason to have our heads down right now. You know, if anything, it's better to get the loss out of the way earlier in the season because I think you said this earlier now we can start to chip our way back up into the top 25 like we did almost every year you know back when we weren't used to running the table that's very true I mean we never start at the top and just like last year you know what when we lost to Pittsburgh I think we were number I think we were number 12 yeah and you know we clawed our way back uh, lost again is is UCF going to be undefeated every single year forever? Probably not. But, uh, you know, what we what we set out to do and what Danny White set out to do uh, when we started on this journey was to make a top 25 program. And top 25 you know, programs don't lose there's, to Tulsa. There's plenty of other programs across the country, many of them, that have never done what we did in 2017 and 2018 that, you know, t- take like a Wisconsin, you know, they're always good, always good, mm-hmm. but they, al- they always lose like one or two games a year. Well, they're also, and it just a- happens. What do you think their fan base thinks? They're, they're in a tough conference and that must be frustrating as well. But at the same time, I mean, if you go back to last year, Pitt on the road, you know, at a conference game, yeah, chalk Didn't it up. Didn't really to matter. Whatever. Cincinnati tough place to go in and play but then it's like Tulsa it's like I'm running out of excuses so then we do it this year and it's at home and it's like ah, I'm really it's not like we're losing to a good team but but it's okay at the same time no I agree I mean Cincinnati last year we go on the road as a four-point favorite a little bit different than a three touchdown favorite at home 
completely um, different. That's a game that I, I was just... I wasn't surprised we lost to Cincinnati. I think everyone was surprised by the result of the Tulsa game. Probably Tulsa included. Oh, for sure. It's just it's way different. But you know, we could we could go back and forth about this all day. Let's actually get into the game a little bit. Um start with the good stuff. Otis Anderson is a really, really good football player. We had thirty four carries for 125 yards, but if you take out the forty nine yard run, that's like two point five yards per carry. Otis Anderson made that run on his own, but besides that, and it's not the running back's fault. I mean, these guys are getting hit behind the line of scrimmage. I, I thought we were starting with good stuff. I don't know. Um, but, but at some point, I, you've got to kind of abandon the run. But good takeaway from that is Otis really showed his ability to make people miss in space, and that was awesome to see. Good I want to st- talk about the receivers. Uh, Marlon Williams. He's Can't unreal. say it enough. He's unreal. He's unguardable. Unguardable. And um, another nine catches, 98 yards. Jay Flash Robinson, another 100-yard game. Only on you what, know, these three, three catches. Too. Three catches. Big, well, big plays. You know, we only, run, we only run two plays, halfback yeah. dive and four verticals. <laughs> <laughs> no, we run the hitches when the corners are off. No, it was good, and I'm sure everyone's seen the stat this year from Pro Football Focus that Marlon Williams – by far leads FBS in total targets without a drop. He's at 47. The next closest person, I think, is at 39. But unfortunately, with the volume of use he's getting, he's starting to get banged up. And I, we talked about it last week. And then on the last play, I think he um, he got a concussion is what it looked like. I'm not going to speculate. But last night on um, Wimbush's Instagram Live, Casey did say that we had three players knocked out. So I, I think we count. Marlin and one of those he's been great and I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't use him more last year uh because I think some of the results could have been a little bit different but you know after that I mean we've got you know you said the receivers said well we've got you know Amari Johnson getting in the action Ryan O'Keefe for a little bit obviously stretch cradle had that great fingertip catch and then the offensive targeting which i guess in the letter of the rule was correct but and we t- i talk about this with squints earlier but that was not like malicious he was not launching himself at the defender i don't think that's an ejectable penalty and you look at it in real time he braced himself for the hit what were you thinking when you saw that at home because we were baffled in the stadium we thought it was yeah we thought it was like a I, we didn't know what it was and then they're like oh we're i mean talk- not the announcers were saying that they didn't think that it was targeting. They were, they were both clearly on the same side of saying that it was not targeting. So when they, I don't really understand it. I didn't think that it was targeting and they need to relook at the rule. Cause you know what? Like I said, in the letter of the law, yes. Did he lower his head, crown of the helmet, whatever. Yeah. But you shouldn't get ejected for a play like that. where you have no malicious intent. In my opinion. He, it was just a football play. I don't know. But it was confusing because they said they were reviewing it for targeting. I was like, oh, and the defense. And then they're like, oh, Cradle's ejected. I'm like, what? So <laughs> uh, that kind of stunk. But that was one of, what, 18, 19 penalties for the second game in a row. It's hard to win when you're penalized that much. And, uh, you know, you can point fingers. You can call out players on Twitter. But 
at the end of the day, I think that that falls on coaching more than anything, especially when it's not the first time it happened. And I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of George O'Leary former players have talked about this. They're like, practice was already hell, but if we had that many penalties, it was really going to be a tough week. And I don't know. I just feel like those are the little things that even if you don't have talent, you can play a good game, not make mistakes like that. Uh, I don't know. But we've had, I don't understand. It just seems like a just this year thing. Like we might have been, have, were we penalized a lot last year? Yeah. It didn't seem like, we were, didn't we seem were, like it. We're towards the bottom, but not like this. And, you know, here's the thing, too. This game, I think we only had five or six penalties at halftime. So it wasn't bad. It just got really bad in the second half. And, you know, there's the offensive line stuff. I don't have an explanation for it. It is what it is. But it, that makes it tough. And you combine that with injuries. You combine that with Tulsa. I mean, they just had our guys covered. And, you know, lack of adjustment from the head coach. And that's just a recipe for a loss all around. You can't blame anyone specifically, I think. Even with and the, the three turnovers that we were gifted in the first quarter, I feel like we could have turned those into a lot more points. This was kind of the same thing with ECU. They kept gifting us the ball, and that game eventually got out of hand, but this one didn't, and we didn't take advantage of it. We only had one real touchdown drive. It started from our own side. Yeah, so, I mean, injuries, turnovers, penalties, the rain. There's a lot well, of the, things. So the injuries I wanted to talk about, you know, it's hard to come back in a game like this, very weird game. But then, you know, when we have Johnny Richardson and Demarius Good, both true freshmen, like our fourth and fifth string running backs trying to lead the charge on the late game drive. Yeah. It's, it's not you ideal. Can't really fault. It's not ideal. You can't, and you're not going to fault them. So it's... It's, I mean, it kind of is what it is. I feel like every single play, there was somebody getting injured. Yeah. Both sides, really. They had a ton of injuries. So I think it's pretty much known, though, that opposing defenses are going to fake cramps a little bit to slow us down. But they, they had some real injuries, too. It is what it is. Not much you can do about that. It's just, it's just part of the game. And um, I mean, to me, it's a weird feeling I have. It was a weird feeling on Sunday. It was a weird feeling... At work today, you know, I'm very passionate about the Knights, obviously. And, um, you know, I know you're a realtor, so you kind of work independently. So you don't really have like a bunch of people in the office. But, you know, when I go into the office, the first <laughs> thing, and I'm sure a lot of you listening out there had to deal with this on Monday. The first thing that anybody could talk to me about was, Ooh. well, first they had to consult me, you know, yeah. like. <laughs> Oh, to see if I wasn't on, like, suicide watch or anything. But, uh, I mean, it's tough, you know? This, this is the third time that we've lost as a double-digit favorite under Coach Hype. You know, this year, this year against Tulsa, you know, just win the games that we're supposed to win. I understand, like, for instance, Cincinnati last year on the road, four-point favorite, but you should not lose a home game if you are a 21-point favorite. Probably shouldn't lose a road game last year to Tulsa when you're a 17-point favorite. You shouldn't And lose. then you lost to Pittsburgh, 
on a trick as a play. ten point favorite. And not only it that, just... we're the we're the a number eleven team in the nation. And you know, people say, "Oh, you know, you guys obviously weren't here for zero and twelve or whatever." Blah blah blah. You know what? That is BS. We want to be a top twenty five program. Top twenty five programs don't lose when they're double digit favorites at home ever, ever. Plain and simple. So yes, the bar has changed. This is not 2015 under George O'Leary. Under George O'Leary, we'd win a conference championship and then go like four and eight, and was like on and off, on and off. We expect ten win seasons. We expect to compete for an NY six, and I think the bar is losing an NY six. That's the minimum. I don't understand why people are mad at me for being mad. This is not an acceptable loss, and we're gonna get on from it. We'll be okay, and we can still control our own destiny. But like, don't be mad at me for being mad. You're a wuss if you're not mad. How can you not be mad about this? <laughs> 21 point yeah. favorites. I mean, you you have to be mad. You have to be. Somebody has to take the blame. And I'm not going to blame the players. So I blame the coach. And that's where we end up with. Another couple little things, too. Really felt like we weren't playing with urgency. So before the half, we get the ball back on our like 25-yard line. But we have two timeouts, 40 seconds left. Let me just run the clock out. And I've seen us do more with less time and I know the weather could be a factor but that's one thing that stuck out a little bit to me the second thing though was even worse this was our second to last drive we somehow ate up almost three minutes it was like two minutes and 43 seconds on five plays on our second to last possession like we were trying and there was only six minutes left that's like 30 seconds per play we used up the entire play clock on every play I I don't understand it because normally we snap the ball, you know, five seconds into the play clock. And it felt like we were just wasting the clock. It just didn't make sense. I, I don't know. That's one other thing that really, really stood out to me. The, you know, getting conservative before the half and then toward the end of the game when time is the most important thing, we were kind of like, we had no urgency is the word. And... um Honestly, I mean, the whole second, it just never really felt like we had a chance. I'm like, I just, it was just inevitable. It wasn't, it wasn't like we had our, like the rug swept, pulled out from underneath us. It just never really felt the fans, the energy. I mean, I know it sucks that the game was empty. Uh, it was just, you know, and soggy too. It doesn't help. The energy was already real low. And then I think when we just couldn't move the ball, it really flattened us, and we didn't have the crowd either to really pump up the offense or you know get the crowd hyped. So you think the score would have been different if the bounce house was full? Oh, 100%. We don't lose at home with a full bounce house. Come on. Is that going to be a new stat that we keep? Yes. <laughs> we, <laughs> we just don't count the COVID. We have, we have a 21-game home win streak with at least, I don't know, 15,000 fans. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's true. Um, We'll keep that. All right. So did, we got to move on with the show. Is there any other grievances that you would like to air? A uh, couple little random notes. Uh, name of the week, wide receiver for Tulsa, Juan Carlos Santana. Very smooth. Uh, little, 90- <laughs> little, little 90s homage there. And um, sell his car. Use car salesman. Joshua Sella's car. Another, Did you think that was targeting? I think he got called for it, and then they said no. That was close. I don't know. I didn't. I mean, the game was four and a half hours, so I didn't really want to rewind it that much. Um, 
if he would have just tackled the quarterback, it wouldn't have even been close. But instead, he was nice and just pushed him over. And then it looked like targeting. That definitely wasn't targeting. Anyway, that dude is going to have a great career it was at UCF. A, it was a much nastier looking hit with him just like coming up and kind of pushing him over. It's like the opposite. Fell like could, ten feet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did you think about the personal foul on Ward for the helmet toss? Because honestly, when I saw it happen, I think just out of abundance of caution, he was trying to get the helmet out of the play. Uh, think you got a helmet roll. What I saw, you got a helmet. All. You got a helmet rolling around. You want to get it out. You know, you don't want to twist your ankle. I mean, I'd like to always take the side of the UCF players, but that unfortunately was a play that I think he'd like to have back. You think it was a frustrate? I'm, I'm dead serious. I think it was out of safety. I'm not being sarcastic, even though listening to myself, it sounds like that. None of these individual penalties, injuries any single play there's no one thing you can blame it on it was just overall i don't know if that's good or bad but all right. we gotta move on there will be more games unfortunately there will be more losses eventually and you gotta learn how to deal with them exactly this is the hand that we were dealt and the only thing we can do is move on win every other game that we play all right next up polls all right, so we dropped to 25 in the coaches' poll, unranked in the AP. So control and destiny. Just like I said earlier, we have to battle back just like the good old days, you know, starting the season off unranked hey, or maybe like one or two votes, and then we went crazy. There you go. <laughs> hey, and you know what? At least we're not FSU, who's looked absolutely terrible. With no direction. I still think we can no, beat the Gators. How do they not have a how do they not have a quarterback? Well, they just now bench Blackman, which was like three seasons too late. But I don't know. You can't judge Norvell off one season. He's got a bunch of first of all, Willie, Willie Tiger. Willie Tiger never recruited a quarterback. So I think they've got like some walk on. I don't know. That's a mess over there. But at least we're not them. Keep everything in perspective. Um, it's all Willie's fault. Some good games this week in the rest of college football. And there were some crazy upsets or just crazy games last week. We were just talking about this. Um, Oklahoma lost. They lost for the second week in a row this week to Iowa State. They're now unranked playing number 22 Texas this week. Then we got a big ACC matchup, Clemson and Miami. Any other games stick out to you without revealing any picks? Uh, this week, yeah. I mean, a couple of my earlier picks from weeks past, TCU and Kansas State. That's one I'm definitely going to be watching. A um, couple of fun teams. A lot of running, gunning. Rumbling, stumbling, bumbling. <laughs> Rumbling, tumbling, stumbling, bumbling. Cole Schneider, bumbling. You got Florida against Texas A&M. Florida playing in like their 17th noon game in a row. Ouch. And yeah, that's about it. We're kind of just waiting for the other conferences to start up. Really, there's not not a ton to talk about like we're used to. But really, it would just be, oh, who's Ohio State beating this week? Only other thing to talk about is, meanwhile, to the West. USF lost to Cincinnati, what, 28-7? Actually, not that lopsided, but the game was never close. They don't have a quarterback either. It's a it's a t- the Taggart effect. Wherever he leaves, they have no quarterbacks. Yeah. And we got a room full of stars. It's nice. Speaking of <laughs> KZ, by the way, on 
Wimbush's Instagram live thingy, he said, I'm, I'm very close. Close to just, what? Just in, to coming back. Oh. He's like right, right well, there. you got to tell us. Yeah, I mean. Close to coming back as a wide receiver. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, this is why I think I have to go to every game this year, because I can't miss his first snap back. Right? Oh, of course. I uh, mean, just him, like, walking out of the tunnel at the with the pads day on. last year. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. But this year, the first time he runs out with pads on, oh, chills, goosebumps, tears, every emotion. Uh, Yeah, so meanwhile to the West, USF sucks. Quick look ahead at Memphis. We talk about Memphis a little bit with Squints. Not going to be an easy game. Luckily, we have a bye week, but this is probably the worst opponent to have to play after a demoralizing loss. Especially, especially away. Especially away. Not going to be easy. Not an easy place to play. Do you think we're going to be favored? Yeah, that the coveted ABC 330 game. My current projected line, which I put out every single week, usually Sundays. Um, Follow him at MoneyMooUCF on Twitter. Same thing so on I Instagram. put that out. If you do watch my projected betting lines, you would have realized that betting on UCF this week was not a good idea. Turns out I was right again. So this week, or coming up next week, my projected line at Memphis will be UCF favored by four and a half. So we'll check to see next Saturday or next Sunday when the lines come out for the game where that actually lies. I have a feeling that it's going to be a little tighter. It would have been a little larger, but Memphis did lose to SMU this past weekend. So I think it's going to be closer to maybe a field goal. Interesting. Are we due for a blowout, maybe? To to blow them out, I'm saying. No, I, I, I don't see that happening. Usually every game that we play with Memphis uh, is has close. been pretty close the last couple times. Yeah, Have we still like never lost to them. We lost to them in our first game in 1990, and then it's been we haven't lost them since. So by the time you're listening to this, they just announced they're releasing extra tickets. They're going up to twelve thousand, so like twenty percent capacity or something from two percent or whatever they were at. You are going to the game? Yeah, so my flight, I was in the middle of DMing American. I tried to change my flight from landing at 7 p.m. Friday to landing at noon Saturday. Just enough time to get some central barbecue and then go into the game. And they're like, yeah, it'll be like a $100 change fee or that's the difference in flights. And I was like, okay, so then I weighed the cost of an extra hotel Friday night. And I was like, all right, that's about 100 bucks, but I'd rather not be stuck in Memphis for an extra day. So I messaged them back, and they're like, oh, now it's $500 to change. So I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to Memphis Ouch. Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so Let's see. I will be in Savannah, Georgia. Is that close? Yo, drive to the game. Road trip. Drive to the game. That's close, kind of. I've had this road trip planned for months and months. So just take another turn. Hey, there's Memphis. <laughs> Actually, I think Memphis is like West Tennessee, but it is. It's nowhere close to Savannah. Okay, and Savannah's like <laughs> Northeast Georgia. Uh, it's Southeast. Whatever. 
if anyone's been listening for a while, you know my geography is not that good. Uh, yeah, so that's Boston, Memphis. Texas. Boston, Massachusetts. All right, uh, let's do Eric Kohler. Great interview with him. So let's do that. All right, guys, I'd like to welcome on a legendary guest. He was the voice of UCF Home Games for the last 19-plus years as PA announcer for UCF football, basketball, and baseball. His name is Eric Kohler. First of all, thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, man, I appreciate it. appreciate your support. It's a great opportunity to kind of uh, shed some light to some of your younger listeners and younger fans. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know, obviously, this past Saturday, the loss – the week leading up to it was a bit different from you in years past, and we will talk about all that. Um, but besides that, it's been a crazy year in general. So most importantly, I want to ask, uh, how are you and your family doing overall? No, I appreciate that, man. That's a, that's a big-time question. I'm very thankful for that. We're, we're doing fine, man. I mean, it's you know, it's a trying time for all of us. I mean, everybody's been affected by this. But, uh, you know, the only downside, I have two young kids, and right now both of them are kind of forced to kind of do virtual school. And um, so that's a little bit different because, you know, kids need to have that social interaction. So that's been a big twist and adjustment for them. But, um, you know, my lady uh, that I've been with for a long time, she's uh, she's been great with them. She's a, a Florida virtual school teacher. So she has the prowess and the expertise to kind of guide them through that. And uh, my mortgage business that I've had been doing for 20 some years is uh, it's been basically kind of a home based model because everything's so electronic these days. So it really hasn't affected me there that much. So to answer your question, it's it's been a little bit of a challenge, but uh, you know what? You have to adapt, and uh, and that's what we've done. So we'll get through this together. Glad to hear that. Obviously, the real estate has just been going crazy. So uh, anyone listening, you know, if you need a, uh, if you're thinking about buying a house or need a loan, hit hit us up. Eric will definitely take good care of you. Been in the business for a long time. Um, so you graduated from UCF back in 1998 and I think you got your first gig announcing baseball a couple years yeah. later uh can you just yeah. talk us through that and how, how you got into that no Sean good recollection of memory there dude yeah absolutely <laughs> I, I came to Orlando for the first time and uh got to admitted to UCF in 96 and the reason why that's an important date is that was the first year that UCF played division one football or known as FBS football which it is today known as uh I went straight through through summer school, waited tables at Applebee's across from UCF, lived in Heather Glen right there, uh, down by university, and uh, and then graduated in 1998 with my business degree. And that was uh, one of my biggest accomplishments in my life. Uh, I started working with WCF uh, the latter part of 98 and 99. I was doing a little radio stuff for WCF, which okay. is still a current station. And that was actually at that time, before you guys have this brand new Nicholson School of Communication, the little radio station was at the current day basement of the current library where they do uh, Spirit Splash. I started doing some little gigs there and there, and then I did the uh, radio color analyst for the UCF at Florida football game in 99. And then in 2000, uh, UCF approached me about being a PA for baseball. And, Sean, I didn't know what PA stood for, but, you know, <laughs> when opportunity comes, man, you know, you raise your hand and say, hey, put me in, coach. Yeah, figure it out later, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and and the rest is kind of history because uh, what's cool about year 2000, Sean, is that was the only year that UCF baseball played at Tinker Field, which is adjacent to the Citrus Bowl, now known as Camper World Stadium. And, um, and now it's no longer a stadium. 
And then 2001, I had the honor of opening up our brand new on-campus baseball stadium known as Jay Bergman Field in 2001. And then um, that same year, I landed men's football and men's hoops. And at that time, I started doing women's hoops as well and women's volleyball. And obviously, I did all the home baseball games in spring for UCF baseball. So there was an over a decade stretch where I was doing men's and women's hoops, women's volleyball, baseball, and football in the fall. So looking back now, I don't even know how I did that from time constraints. That's that's insane. That's almost, I mean, you're probably doing, what, three, four games a week at certain points in the fall there, it sounds like. Exactly, especially when football and basketball overlaps. But the biggest kicker was, you know, baseball, because you would have sometimes at the start of the season that a lot of the schools from the north didn't have the good weather, so they'd come down and play schools like UCF so they could get some baseball games in. So you would have points where, I would have a Tuesday and Wednesday night game, and then there would be a three-game homestand on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you want to talk about sacrifice, time, and energy. Um, I gave everything I could to UCF, and uh, and I'm looking back, I'm really proud and sometimes surprised how I was able to put that all together and to do all those games, man. That's a lot, and on top of that, uh, building your own business as well yeah. at the same time. That's definitely something to be proud of, and you know, like you said, you're a legend here at UCF, and uh, you know, you had a great career. And, you know, it's funny because I when the PA job became open, obviously, I asked for the, you know, the, the audition script and I got about two lines down in it. And I was like, whoa, I can't do this. It was a lot more than I thought. Um, so <laughs> yes, what, sir. What, what are some of the kind of things behind the scenes about being a PA announcer that people don't really realize that makes it difficult? Well, I think it's a great call because, you know, I'll um, head this off with this is that, you know, sitting in that seat and being the voice of the bounce house is, is more than you can even imagine. Um, to answer your question more specifically, you, you have to be on your mental game. Um, even though when we go to timeout and fans can go take a break and get something to drink and get to eat, well, you got to think that now in those breaks, we're doing all these on-field presentations in terms of sponsors or um, some marketing fun things or stuff like that. So, for the time that you do your first read of welcoming the fans in the stand all the way till the end, and hopefully where you're saying one more thing, nights win, <laughs> you got to be on your game because you got to think about you're responsible for all the offensive and defensive calls that go during the game. You got to be on top of your scripts. You got to make sure your voice stays consistent. Um, you got to have eyes in the skies. You got to have good spotters that, that, that can help you with some tough calls uh, so you can be quick on your call because, especially with our brand of football now, Oh, you yeah. got to be very quick to get that first out call in or the third down call. So it really kind of makes, you know, it sound good. You have to have the insertions of the energy has to be spot on. And, and that's something I'm very proud of because, you know what, I immersed myself in that position and I became the position. And, and I think it's going to take a while for the new guy to create his own way, his own energy. But it's going to take some time, man, because I'll tell you what, it's – there's a lot on your plate of being the voice of the bounce house. And I'm very proud to know, you know, stepping down, we won 21 straight home games on my watch, which was 1,414 days. And go figure the last time we lost at home was in November of 2016 to Tulsa. Of go figure. Of course it was Tulsa. They've seemed to always have our number. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you definitely made it you know your own kind of voice um did you always have you know your signature uh third down and the one more thing nights win or did that you kind of pick up on that as you got more comfortable in the position 
You know, so, you know, that's, that's a really good question, actually. You know, those all, you know, like a new school like UCF has been for a while, you know, it always been searching for traditions, you know, marketing was always kind of, you know, pledged the fact to create something for the fans that would stick. So, you know, we did, you know, have some struggles with that because we had to go through transition. You had to find out what worked for the fans, what turned the fans on in terms of energy. And the first down call was organically over the years. Um, you know, I started hearing some referees in the NFL, how they do the first down. I noticed that the first down was a, it's a big call because you get, you know, a new set of downs and your offense keeps a football. And the move the chains, you know, I took several road trips with fans and, and they always give me input. Hey, maybe, maybe try this. And, and I would start kind of like, uh, you know, experimenting with that. And right. uh, when, when it was good enough for another UCF first down, I preface it with that'll move the chains. And it just seemed like it just took off. The third down call, the history of that's pretty cool, is when I was announcing games in the Citrus Bowl, um, I noticed, you know, at the Citrus Bowl at that time, you could drink beers. So, you know, there was the same group of guys that would come and sit up under the overhang where I was in the press box. You know, they're drinking beers and having a good time and, you know, checking out ladies, you know, doing things college kids are supposed to do. So I kept noticing on third down that, like, a big third down of the game that we weren't paying attention to the game whatsoever. So I just kind of started messing with the kind of the inflection of getting louder, of like third down and just kind of like, you know, a dog with a doorbell. You know what I'm saying? When yep. the pizza guy comes and rings the doorbell, everybody awake, keep getting louder and louder. And you noticed on that third down call, they would finally put their beer down on the bench, <laughs> stand up and start banging on the bench, clapping their hands. And, and that's that's where that was born. That's awesome. And, you know, when you did the analogy with the dog, I mentally pictured myself getting up, even though I try and be loud on every down. The third down just it just it just hits different. Um, and yeah, I guess we're programmed. And you know, like you said, the new guy it'll probably take him some time to come up with his own things. And that was one of the things too. When I'm going over the script, I'm like, I can't copy. But like naturally, as I'm as it becomes third down in this game script they gave me, that's what I wanted to say. And I'm I, I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not even yeah. get. I was nervous just to record an audition tape. I cannot imagine <laughs> sitting there watching, seeing the football field, the team run onto the field and having to do that. Uh, that's a high pressure job. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, man. I'm glad that you put, you know, you, you checked it out and uh, maybe it wasn't cut for you, but I, I'm proud of the fact that you actually looked into it and gave it a whirl. But uh, I wanted to finish on something you said she was organically the one more thing nights win. Well, you know, as we noticed, we were starting to create that culture of being like one of the hardest places to play in college football. I just noticed that we're we were starting to have a lot of good home success, and I just felt like you know I would do you know we integrated the Go Knights Charge on, you know on behalf of you know UCF Athletic Family, please drive home safely. Thanks for your support and attendance. And remember Go Knights Charge on. And I was like, you know what? I just said that, you know, you gotta say you know, we just won the game. You gotta close and, it, you know. And I just thought that it was such an opportunity. I just came up with a oh, and one more thing. Knights win, and it's like everybody just embraced on that thing, and, and and that just really made me happy. And and as I spoke to you before on a conversation, is that I had fans that usually said they would taper off to try to avoid some of the traffic, that they were now staying till the, after the game because they just loved hearing that, and that was kind of like an exclamation point of a successful home win. And um, you know, listen to those things from the fans to get that feedback, Sean. That that made me. That was close to my heart and made me very, very proud. And uh, you should be. And I am very proud. I know it's a different. You know, the, the Tulsa game was very, you know, just kind of roller coaster of emotions. 
and I, I don't want to jump ahead in the interview, but just, you know, what I'm thinking about is that. No, go for it. It, it just was, you know, it was just so hard for me that I'd never missed a home game. Okay. Cause in 2000, I was doing some stuff up in the stats, like a stat runner and stuff. So I didn't get the PA job till 2001. So I'd never missed a home game in 20 years and never missed announcing a home game in 19 years. And, and just kind of, you know, being out some really loyal fans and friends uh, that night that took the sting off it, it just, it just felt so foreign to me. And, and the sad part was, is it was really lost. That was, that, that was tough because I got a lot of messages and stuff like, Eric, you know, my gosh, you know, just step away and this is what happens. And that was kind of a weird feeling to me too, Sean, because I didn't know how to kind of feel about that where, you know, it's got to be that mixed, mixed I know emotions. The, I, well, no, but I mean, I know the football team plays the game, but, maybe I didn't realize of how much energy I really did interject into the fans that which helped the team. And, you know, so, you know, now it's having a little time to reflect, Sean. It's like, maybe I didn't realize how much of a presence that I really did bring to the table. And, and it's a good thing, but, you know, I, I hated to see them lose. And, um, it, it was, it was, it was a tough weekend, but, uh, I'm kind of relieved where I'm going to get my time back. And, and now I maybe can kind of look back and thanks to people like you, I, I get to relive some things that uh, I've been going 90 miles an hour where I've never had a chance to look back and be thankful for all the cool stuff I've done. Yeah. Even though 20 years is a long time, I'm sure it kind of at the same time went by fast. And then you, you look back and you're like, whoa, what just happened? I mean, you yep. were fresh out of college and now you're, you know, a grown adult with kids and, uh, you know, doing all those games and stuff that I'm sure it went by quickly. but I'm sure at the same time, you also have a ton of amazing memories, too. And uh, like you said, you really made a huge impact on us. Um, it definitely won't be the same. But, you know, all good things have to come to an end is, is I think, what I would say there. Um, yeah. yeah. And I left UCF in a good place. I think I I think I set the, uh, the bar pretty high as a gold standard of, of creating the energy and, you know, continuing the bounce house as being one of the toughest places to play in college football. It definitely has become that. And that's you know, over the last four or five or so years, it's really, really taken off. And uh, speaking of the bounce house, one other question to kind of follow up on the, the Go Nights charge on. When did the Zombie Nation song officially start and kind of become like the bounce house thing? Uh, I've heard different like kind of stories about that, but I wanted to get your take. Yeah, you know, Zombie Nation obviously just came out, you know, you know, several years ago. You know, I can't think of the exact year that that took off because that was such a such a big thing that I heard when we would go out to away games. We'd go to, you know, bars and hanging out with the fans, the alumni tailgates and stuff like that. It just we just noticed that song started to populate in the main population, especially in college sports. It, it, now every then, team plays it. <laughs> well, well, correct. But it's, it just seemed like we kind of had a jump on it to be kind of the. Uh, to the unique users to that, but that is a unique sound to UCF. And, you know, it's awesome that that prefaces, you know, me coming in, here come your nights. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I just don't, you know what? It's just been, it's so entrenched in my memory that it's always been there. I really don't recall of when it was not in there. I mean, obviously it wasn't at the Citrus Bowl. We obviously opened up the campus state on campus stadium in 2007. But, uh, you know, that that's a great question. You know, you need to reach out to, uh, for another broadcast, get Jimmy Skiles on to ask him that. That's that would be a good question for him. He, he would know. I, I have a feeling that, you know, it started off as it, 
we played it and then people started bouncing and then the bounce house thing and I'm sure it kind of snowballed but it'd definitely be uh be good to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, story. because you know what that is a good point because I think I do remember playing it and I do remember that um people just the, the whole crowd just went kind of crazy and and I think that uh, once we started having some of these marketing meetings I think it just all of a sudden intertwined itself and it was one of those things see that's what's cool about tradition see those are the little stories that you grow organically Exactly. You don't force it. You, you listen to what the people give you the feedback that you can start feeding them. And that's exactly what happened. And then the bounce house took off. Yeah. Great person. But I think that would be a great answer for you to get for your listeners. It's really cool to see how traditions develop over time. And like you said, you can't force them. And really time and trial and error is kind of what what makes it happen. And it this didn't happen on purpose like a lot of things, but they just ended up working. And now it's a, a piece of our culture and our identity. As yeah, I, I like UCF. that, Sean. I think I think you I think you hit that on the spot right there. It takes time and trial and error, and I think you hit that statement spot on, dude. Um, all right. So let's change the subject a little bit. Who is your favorite coach? You've seen a lot of different faces. Um, did you have a favorite or maybe a favorite story from one of them? Or Mike Kruzek, You know, obviously I started. You know, I graduated in '98, and '98 was the year of the senior, our senior legendary Dante Culpepper. And I would be out of practices before I started doing radio in 99. Uh, a funny story about Mike Kruzek, uh, he, he would always refer to me as the mouth of the South. <laughs> <laughs> I would always, I would always get a kick out of that. And then, um, you know, I, I never had a favorite coach because I always supported everybody. You know, I always, I was one of those guys, you know, a little sidebar story here is I, I think there's such a detriment to social media these days that, that people can just rip on something so quickly and not have any any consequence whatever like mike tyson said he hates social media because anybody can say anything and they never have the chance to get punched in the face and and i think that's i think that's a great story but no i don't have i don't have a favorite coach i know that everyone had a little bit different a nuance like scott frost you know he was a quiet but a cool calm collective a very confident coach uh, i like hypel um because he's such a he's such a down-to-earth you know, kind of Midwest kind of guy mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a family guy, you know, O'Leary, you know, you had to, you had to understand O'Leary. There was too many people that misjudge O'Leary, just like an old salty old coach. Mm-hmm. But if you gave him the chance with O'Leary, which I had the fortunate time to, to get to know him on a personal level, you, you never, you never didn't know where you stood with him. And I thought that was refreshing because some people you'll see one day and the next day they're like a total energy. Like you knew what you were getting when you had Coach O'Leary, yeah. And um, and Kruzak was one of those offensive mind guys. And actually, there was a coach that was in a coach that is now the executive director for the Cure Bowl is Alan Gooch. So uh, those were basically the five coaches that covered my tenure of uh, basically twenty years. But um, I, I think it is funny that O'Leary, he he just man, he's funny man. I, I remember <laughs> after one of the luncheons that I do because I do the was doing the intros for the luncheons and some of the stuff in between our big kickoff luncheons. And I remember, you know, I integrated my kind of growly voice because I do some stuff with the Orlando Predators. Well, you know, I was like, here come your nights. And the next day I remember I see my practice. He goes, he goes, Hey, Cola, what do you think this is? A WWE event. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but he's a good dude. He, he took care of me. Like, uh, I would be guaranteed to go on at least one trip with the team every year. And, uh, oh, that's cool! Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, he was he was he he was good to me, man. But like I said, is I any coach that came in, I try to support them. I'm a very external guy. 
um, the one thing about me and people that are starting to see now, I was so much more than a voice for UCF. I was a natural sales ambassador. I was always a big alumni guy. I'd wear my UCF lapel pin all the time. Um, you know, I, I gave everything to UCF. And, and like I says, any coach that came in was an old ball coach. I would support them any way I possibly could. That's funny about George. He's had so many unique and hilarious quotes. And I, I think you're right about, and I never knew him on a personal level, but I know a ton of people that did. And they all kind of said the same thing. And especially the former players, they'd be like, they hated him to death when they were their coach, but then were so thankful for how they molded them into, uh, you know, into, into grown men, adults. The stories are almost unlimited, bottomless, uh, well, when you I mean, ask anyone about George. Too is, uh, O'Leary was a big part of our culture, though, too. You guys think that with him, when, when he was hired, UCF kind of needed a name, okay? Our first year, we went over. His last year as coaching for UCF, he went over. But you know what? The next year, we had the third best turnaround at that time for any team that went uh, no wins the previous season. It was the third best turnaround, making our first ever bowl game in 2005. And and that, that was huge because the reason why I state that position right there for some people that don't have institutional history, that really kicked in 2004. Obviously, the offer was terrible, but the hiring of him to have a quote-unquote football brand name at UCF then turn around the second year, going to our first ever bowl game ever. And then 07 is next, and then the yes. dominoes just fall. And no, but I mean, the biggest thing is that 05, that really started kicking, starting the energy to getting the dollars and a plan of having an on-campus stadium, which is now known as the Bounce House, which popped off, which I got to announce against Texas in 2007. Um, but that's a big, huge footnote there. Yeah, no, the stadium was crucial, and that I think that was... You know, one of his the biggest things he, he harped on when he came here was pushing for that stadium. And I think looking back, we can really see how valuable that's been to us, especially when we look at other schools that don't have a stadium still. I'll give you a perfect example. Check this out. Look, look at uh, we're supposed to be our rivals. At first, it started off, we got kind of beat by them. Now we've taken advantage of them. I, I call them the Tampa Bulls because I don't West Florida. That's that, that's not okay. South Florida. I thought West Florida. West, anyway, I don't want to take a slap to West Florida because that's actually a school as well in Pensacola. But, <laughs> but anyway, with with USF, look look at the changing of the guard here. They were in the Big East. They were having great success. Okay, mm-hmm. they they did back back behind politics to keep us out of the Big East. Okay, I, we kept I, staying I the course. Yeah, we stayed the course. We got our on campus stadium. Now look at the look at the dire straits that program is in now. It's in crazy. terms of hiring these new coaches. They're still at Ray J. Ray J is a beautiful stadium, but it was the same plight we had is when we had decent crowds in the Citrus Bowl. It looked sparse. Exactly. And the on-campus stadium was was the game program changer for UCF football. You know, it's crazy too because I remember some of those old games uh, getting whooped in Raymond James and. Uh, they had more fans back then than, I mean, it's not even close than the, than they do now, being in the Big East and everything. And, you know, if they'd, if they'd let us in, we would both probably be in a better conference now. But instead, I think so. Uh, instead, they, they, you know, ended up getting left behind and then we surpassed them, you know, in these last yeah. five or six years. Yeah, it, it could have been a Tampa Orlando connection in terms of the TV market. And I think that would have been a package plan. And I agree with you there. I think there's could be a possibility of a, a what if if we kind of like married our brands and kind of built it instead of trying to, you know, keep us to the side and kind of a stiff arm. I think it would have been a different deal. But I think that 
they didn't see us as equals, though. If anyone remembers back, maybe, I don't know, say seven, eight years ago, talk to USF fans, they would say we're not actually rivals because, you know, we were six and two against. Exactly. They canceled the football series and now look where we are. So, yeah. Yeah. But I agree. You know, if they, if they, when they turn it around, because I'm sure they will, you know, uh, I think they've got some good, good people in charge now, finally. Um, I think the book. The success of both of us will help each other uh, rise up together, and uh, it'll be a fun rivalry for years to come. Um, I I enjoy beating them down, to be honest with you. But, well, uh, yeah, this I mean, is your show, but I get what you're saying. Well, you know, trust me, I I enjoyed that too, and I'm not saying I want them to win, but if they're good, that makes it better when we beat them. It makes well, you know, 2017 that game would have been different yeah. if that team wasn't good that we were playing. If they weren't 10 and one, if the conference or uh, sorry, the division wasn't at stake. That touchdown by Mike Hughes wouldn't have been quite as important, but with everything on the line, uh, I made that game that much more special, which I think leads me into my next question here. What were your top five home games that you called? Uh, 2005 against Marshall in the Citrus Bowl, when we snapped a 17-game losing streak and went on to go into our first ever bowl game. The field goal post. Uh, Yeah, field goal post, which I probably have in my uh, black and gold Hall of Fame sports room. Uh, Obviously, 2007 opening against Texas and on-campus stadium. I'd always had the vision that uh, that would be a game-changer for our program. And uh, for see, to see that vision, like, actually taking place in front of my eyes and beat them and announce that game against a Blue Blood program like Texas, almost, that really stands out. Almost beat them, too, man. That was a good oh, game. Oh, yeah. It was just, yeah, we had a bad turnover there. That um, fumble, I still don't know how that fumble didn't go out of bounds. <laughs> I don't either, but that, that, was, that was really the stickler. And also, don't forget about that game is that the – Stadium, we ran out of water, so everybody, the media, enjoyed that story, that backstory. We still hear about that. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious, but um, we fixed that. Um, obviously, calling Mike Hughes at the end because I mean, I just came back from the Bahamas calling a basketball tournament, and and to feel the energy of the crowd and just really getting them bouncing. I mean, and for that game, like you said, is you know, South Florida was good. The whole the stage was set. And for Mike Hughes to take it to the house, and I've always been experimenting with his name of Mike Hughes, and to be able to do that to win the game, Sean, <laughs> uh, was something special. Uh, the Memphis game um, at home, just a horrific injury sustained to Mackenzie Milton of KZ, and then to see our team just completely being beat down, and then everybody trying to honor KZ with the lays around their necks, and then for Daryl Mack to lead us back. Uh, and that second half was just one of the biggest comeback stories. I couldn't even believe it sitting up there. Um, what's another game? Gosh, was, there's so many games, I, man. I, it's such a it's such a fun question to talk about now because uh, um, there's so many of them at this point. Yeah, you know, another game. Go figure. It's Tulsa, uh, 2005. This is a proud moment. Uh, it wasn't at the bounce house, but it was at the Citrus Bowl at that time. But that was the first time. Um, I believe we had the Conference USA Championship, and we hosted it. Yep. Um, and we, we lost because they had some tight end. I think his name was Paul Smith or something, was running like a deer in the second half across us. But that was special because I think we had 40 – I got the picture up on my sports room. I got to send that to you one day. I think we had like 45,000 people. That that was momentous for me as well. And another game that sticks out to me is I got – I can't remember what year it was, but uh, – to to announce the first ever American Athletic Conference football championship game, that was that was pretty special for me as well. But those, those are the ones that kind of stand out. 
um, that really were, were big for me. But that Marshall game, I'm telling you, obviously was not open up to 2007, Sean. Mm-hmm. But, but that Marshall game, which I stated in a reporter that gave me a nice little send-off uh, last week, it, it really marked the fact that we had a name and a coach for O'Leary. We, we finally snapped that horrific 17-game win, uh, losing streak. And I just felt like, you know, Coach had to kind of clean out the closet to get all his guys in place to run his program. And I just really felt that moment after I saw people uh, run on the field, tearing down the goalposts. I just really felt in that moment that uh, UCF football had arrived. And you know what? My, uh, my thought in that, looking back, was, was pretty much 100% correct because the sky was the limit. That was definitely uh, the shift in momentum for our program and the beginning so. of, you know, like I said, it, we went from that to the conference championship loss in 05, but still baby steps, but a bowl game. Then we win it in 07, and, you know, the rest is history. I, I don't have to go over this. We talk about it all the time, but it was each little thing was a, a huge landmark at the time to get us all the way uh, to where we are today, and still we're not all the way there. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for our future. I, I am too, and, and I want to interject there. That that's something I'm really proud of too. That you just kind of said and hit right on the right on the money is that I had the fortunate opportunity and privilege to be around and announce a lot of stuff, be on the road for a lot of that stuff as a fan. But to all those milestones, that that's what's really I'm kind of proud of is that there'll never be another kind of like first. Oh, another game is uh, since it rings a bell, our first ever opponent over. Our first home win against a ranked opponent. That was another game against the Houston Cougars. That, that was another ring. I, I want to leave this with you on this the historical thing that people forget. 1998 was probably our best chance to make our first bowl game. We didn't make it till 2005, okay? Ouch. 98, we got screwed by another hurricane. That's when UCLA was the number one team in the country. They were supposed to play the Miami Hurricanes, which was a really bad football team at the first part of the year. They would have got drummed by UCLA, okay? Well, the hurricane postponed the UCLA-Miami hurricane game till toward the end of the season. Miami upset UCLA. We were slated to go to the Micron PC Bowl in Miami. We finished 9-2, and two, kind of blew the game against Auburn, but we were pretty much projected to go to our first bowl game in 98, but Miami beat UCLA and upsetting. They got the spot. We got bounced out. So it took us seven years thereafter to make our first ever bowl game. And that was attributed to another gosh damn hurricane. That's a true story. Look it up. Wow. No, I believe it. I, I did not know that. I know obviously all the recent ones, I think we've lost one the last three seasons in a row. And now this year we've, everyone's getting games canceled. I did not know about 1998. Yeah. Great. Look that up. It's, it's a cool, sad story, but just a hurricane had dealt their hand in us again. It feels like we got the short end of the stick so many times um, coming as an up-and-coming school, and now I think our luck has reversed in these last few years. I don't know if it'll make up for all the heartbreak over those years, though, but uh, we've well, definitely I had luck it. on our I side. Missing, I hate missing the North Carolina game, though, I mean, this year. I mean, obviously, the Tulsa really damaged our kind of you know national prospects, at least at this time, because we could run the table if we you know play the football we can for this season. But having that other you know, kind of a name of North Carolina not being able to play that game again, that 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 hurts, man. We would have been uh we would have been ranked in the top ten you know before the Tulsa game if we had beat North Carolina. That was gonna be a good matchup between two really impressive sophomore quarterbacks too. Uh yep. 
it just stinks. This whole, I mean, this whole year stinks. But I tell people all the time, at least we have some football. But uh, yeah. I don't know. What, what what do you do? You can't control it. So I I, I want to ask you this. Okay, I, I know this is your podcast, but this is a question for me too. Is that you know we talked? I made a comment earlier about social media. You know, losing the Tulsa game is tough because first of all, you know, it kind of it knocked us out of the national rankings at this time. You know, and it ended a, a very really cool home winning streak that I'm very proud of um, to amass over three years. But more importantly is how are these younger fans just so quick to just rip like individual players, coaches, now fire hypo. I mean, John, the civility of social media, it's just so, it's so crazy, man. Like you said, a good point. The reason why I'm bringing this up is you said, Hey, the positive side people, at least we're able to talk about UCF football. They're playing. But then those same people are the ones, not you, but, but, but these people out there just rip. I mean, losing to Tulsa sucks at home. Absolutely yeah. sucks twice. But, but dude, seriously, where's the filter of some of these people? You know, it's tough. And I'll be the first one to admit that I, I, I called for Heupel's head after the game, which I retracted in the morning. But if anyone's new here, I've done this after every single loss. So it's a knee-jerk reaction. Um, but... A lot of people, first of all, I've never said anything bad about a player. And we talked about this earlier on the show. Uh, these kids are out there. Right now, they're sacrificing so much. They have no social life. They can't do anything. Yeah. They have to be in isolation so they don't catch COVID just so they can go out there and entertain us as fans. Um, the coaches get paid big bucks. You know, should I have said the things I did? Probably not. But they get paid to take the heat. So I think that's fair. Uh, but the they, players are off limits, in my opinion. It, they especially should be. college players. Especially college players. I mean, these are just kids, and they're doing it for free. They're doing it for entertainment. One percent of them will get a chance to make it in the NFL. That's not why most of these guys are here. Uh, right. But but I agree. But you know, that's just it is what it is with social media. It's not just with sports. It's with political arguments, and I see people arguing on Facebook about politics or anything, and I'm like, this is not a conversation. That you would have face to face. People just, you know, they type things and, and they just get emotional and say stupid stuff. And I don't know if there's any way back from it, but I, I get what you're saying. And uh, the Mike Tyson quote is definitely a, a good one uh, <laughs> because that's that's true. <laughs> I thought um, you would enjoy that. I saw that with Mike Tyson, what he thought about social media. And I wanted to share that man because you're, you're a high energy guy. And, and I thought that was you would get a chuckle out of that. <laughs> uh, that's definitely good. Um, Okay, is there anything else you wanted to talk about, man? This has been such an awesome conversation so far. Yeah, no, I just, you know, I really never got a chance to really to kind of thank, uh, you know, all the fans over the years, the newer fans, the older fans. Um, you know, it was really kind of a compliment to me of, of parents had reached out over the past week or so, you know, being like, it's never going to be the same. You know, our, our kids grew up with your voice. You know, you had the nuances of, of the certain calls and the way that you, you interjected your energy. I had one tweet that said um you know eric you know even now most people you know you go on the road you don't even pay attention to the public address announcer but when you went to ucf home games you did because you just made the games better you know just just things like that warm my heart because you know sean you know you and i don't have a lot of history but i can see where your passion is and your head is for ucf and that's what's going to make ucf the promised land which is becoming and i'm just so grateful to UCF and all the fans and the coaches and players administration that gave me this opportunity for all these years, because being able to announce these first and these milestones, you know, I, no one's going to be able to really do that because there's only, you only get to do first one time. And 
I am truly thankful uh, to Night Nation and people like you that that gave me the platform and, and appreciated my value. And uh, I'll never forget. And once a night, always a night. And uh, you know, I just hope the new guy does a good job. And but uh, you know, it's the same token. I hope people remember uh, the original voice. And uh, and hopefully that'll be you know, my fingers across for me and my family as much as I sacrifice to UCF that I'm I'm properly acknowledged at some point in official capacity. Yeah. That's the one thing that kind of at least irks me a little bit is that you didn't get like a, a farewell tour, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think everything kind of happened unexpected and we don't have to get into that. There was just a lot of stuff, Sean. And you know what? It's like, you know, I I have respect for, for all sides. And, and it just, you know, sometimes there's just a time. You know, sometimes there's signals and things sometimes that are in your control, out of your control. And uh, this just seemed like the right time. And um I know some people can't understand it. People wonder if there's a backstory, but uh, there was just some stuff that uh, needed to be addressed, and uh, it didn't work out the way it did. And, and we thought this was a great time, and it was, uh, you know, it's a win for my family. I get they get me back, I get them back, and uh, and I'll keep supporting UCF. Now I get to enjoy the, the games just like you do now. I, I was gonna say, um, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing you in the stands here at some point, maybe when everything gets back to normal and you've put in so much time over these last 20 years. It must be actually nice to finally have the opportunity to enjoy it. So you got to look at the bright side is what I would say. And it sounds like you've definitely done that. And um, I think UCF will definitely give you a proper send off, honor you in some point, because you're right. You've been a part of this team like you or not, which I don't think anyone doesn't, but you've been a part of our history and uh, that's something that no one can take away. So that's, you should definitely, definitely be proud. And it sounds like you are. Well, and it, it is cool. And like I said, is, you know, I have mad respect for you, Sean, of, of you reaching out through social media and that's taking a couple of conversations and, and then, you know, bringing me on as a guest. I mean, I, I just, that's cool, bro. I really, that, that makes, that gives me peace of mind. And it is nice to have my time back because I, I didn't realize, like I said to you before, is I didn't realize how much I had immersed myself in terms, I would truly wait for the UCF schedules to come out and I would, basically just schedule my life around the, those schedules and and that's that's passion loyalty uh and just complete sacrifice and um and i did it i completed it i finished it and i, I think i sent off ucf in a good place and now they understand how important energy is and um hopefully we can get that win on the road next week at memphis i'll be there uh looking forward to it definitely they they always give us a, a very tough time um look Thanks so much again. I'll definitely want to have you back on at some point too. Well, dude, just just keep being you, man. And like I said, it's just uh, you know, try to coach in some of your listeners and stuff to try to, you know, be a little more compassionate. Just to try to maybe stay away from the players, man. Because it's, I went you, on I went on a rant at the very very beginning of our show. I went on a huge rant about that. Okay, so. that's cool. Because yeah. I mean, the fact is, you, you made a good point. I mean, this, this is an unprecedented time um, that these kids are kind of away from their families. Um, they have to, like you say, these so contained bubbles of, you know, limit exposure to different people. They can't get, they can't go party, which, you know, these kids are accustomed to doing. They can't do like normal stuff. And it's like, they can't enjoy being a student athlete. No, they're just an no, athlete. They're, they're, yeah. yeah. They're busting their ass, dude. And it's like, you know, it's like, man, the whole thing with the Matthew Lee, dude, I, I just wanted to reach through the freaking phone and be like, Oof. yeah, you know what? It's like, dude, you know, think about how he feels. But it's like you, you know, know he, just, he doesn't feel good. You don't need to make him feel worse about it. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, that, think, I, think about how how brutal people were on Mackenzie Milton after the Arkansas State game in the Cure Bowl, 
And then we went on a run where we didn't lose a damn game yeah. that next year. That's crazy. I mean, and I think that definitely helped make him stronger getting through that. Not that it's okay, but that, yeah. I think that definitely helped mold him. So. Dude, he's, he's KZ, I'll tell you what, that he's a special force. And I tell you what, his energy single-handedly is, is the heart of that team. Whether he plays again, whether he's under center or whatever, that story of KZ should be, and that season, I should add, that should be a 30-on-30 for ESPN. The year that we went undefeated with the whole coaching switch between, you know, Frost, you know, going back and forth between practice and the next day you Insane. see him on Twitter on with Nebraska gear next to a Christmas tree with his recruits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that team was unbelievable. That's a story we got to talk about one day. But, uh, Sean, listen, man, I really appreciate the opportunity, dude. Um, I can talk any stuff, all stuff. And, uh i always here to support you any way I can, brother. Sounds good. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Go Knights. Charge on! All right, and we're back. All right, now it's time for our first watch. Fresh take of the week. If you guess the closest score and first touchdown score, you can win a $25 gift card to first watch, the official breakfast and lunch sponsor of One Night Stand. And this week's winner is UCF Jeff from Instagram. He got Jacob Harris with the first touchdown and was a little bit off on the score, but by far the closest and one of the only people that picked Harris. So congrats, UCF Jeff. We will contact you for your $25 first watch gift card. Thank you guys for playing. All right, now it's time for a Built by UCF update. Pretty good week for the UCF boys. We had a total of four touchdowns by Saints players against the Lions. Latavius Murray getting into the end zone twice, and Traquan Smith, wide receiver one, also getting into the end zone twice. My boy Matt Prater, also on my fantasy team, with a big old no three extra points. <laughs> Dang, so we had five separate scores by three UCF players in that game. Pretty cool. Uh, Gabe Davis, my dynasty team decimated. I had to play Gabe Davis and he scored. No one cares about your fantasy team. Yeah, I know. But that was cool. Also, Adrian Killens got in the game. I don't know if you watched that game. They used him in motion a bunch of times and I could tell they were setting up some kind of misdirection play. And then when they finally did it, he got tackled for like a 12 yard loss because no one blocked the people. Yeah. And then he got... He got dropped, but he'll probably get signed back to the practice squad. But it's still cool, cool for us to see him out there. AK-46, way better than AK-47. All right, next up, it's time for our favorite segment, Money Moves. Picks of the Week. All right, guys, only two picks this week. We're talking quality over quantity. Two and one last week with big winners, Kansas State and Virginia. The only loser was Western Kentucky on a late touchdown by Middle Tennessee that meant absolutely nothing. But I'll take the two and one week. I moved to three, three and one on the season. Definitely got to do better for you guys. That's, I mean, you're, you're 500 at least. Like we're, we're treading water at least now. So we're trying. Yeah. We're trying. Vegas is kind of catching on to, the moo to my little to my little analysis thing Vegas here because like listens and then they adjust their lines based off our podcast 
Yeah. For sure. All the lines were really tight, like with what I would normally bet. So I scoured every game and I got two. That's it. But at least, you know, they're worthy to watch and not stupid Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee. All right. The first pick we're going to go with Boston College plus six against Pittsburgh. This is the first road game for Pittsburgh. And the Pitt special extraordinaire, Kenny Pickett, everyone remembers him. So my commemorative t-shirt. Leads the charge for Pitt after a solid two rushing touchdown performance last week. These are two good defenses, so maybe check the under. It is only like 43, which seems extremely low for college. But anyway, Pitt beat Louisville, which makes Miami's win against them not look as impressive. Here's the biggest stat of the game. Boston College is 7-1-1 against the spread as a home underdog in the last three years. So them being a home underdog nine times in three years is enough, but they usually cover. I mean, 7-1-1. Sounds like they've got a good home field advantage working for them. Last year at Pittsburgh, Boston College was an eight-point underdog, and they won outright. Hmm. So Pittsburgh. Not a tough Seems road game. Seems to be a lot of trends looking towards Boston College way. So we're going to soar with the Eagles. Boston College, plus six. So not only do I like your pick and analysis, but anytime we can root against Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's in the doghouse for the rest of my life. Because of that game, I, I hate Darrell Revis. I hate anything Pittsburgh-related. I hate Ben Roethlisberger, just anything around there. I will always root against Pittsburgh, so I'm very excited to bet on Boston College on Saturday. Okay, what's your second pick? Second pick. I want to make it a slam dunk pick, which I am lifetime 4-0 and slam it, dunks. But... What, how many udders in confidence? Is this a five udder? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a five udder. Not a I'm five saying a slam dunk is a five udder Is it three udder? This is like a three or four. Okay. I'm pretty confident in this one. Though we're gonna take Notre Dame minus twenty one against Florida State. Do I really even need to handicap this one? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. Florida State sucks. Look, I have a good friend that's a Florida State alum. We usually watch football together. I've watched every Florida State game this year. The Jacksonville State debacle that was this past week. I watched the Miami game. I watched the Georgia Tech game. Woof. Just to put it lightly, it's really bad. Yes, Notre Dame hasn't really played anybody. They destroyed USF and they beat Duke. Those are their easy wins. But flat out, Florida State is inept on offense and they can't score any points. The defense has basically given up. The last five years that Florida State has been a double-digit dog, it's been nine times. Guess what their record is? Uh, 0-9. One and eight. Ouch. So when they're heavily favored against, they just don't show up at all, is what you're when saying. When they're heavy dogs, yeah. Unlike Boston College. <laughs> when Florida State is a heavy dog, they don't show up to play. So, Take Notre Dame, Fighting Irish, Ian minus Buck. 21, and is Norvell on the hot seat? Uh, he's in the Corona bubble. I don't know if they have a hot seat in there. But no, he was be. back on the sideline coaching. Oh, really? 
Yeah. That was a quick recovery. Um, <laughs> it's bad, man. It's really bad. You can't so, judge him off of one year, though. And he was dealt a raw hand. I mean, like we said earlier. Coach's co- coach. Is coach. He's in a Quote bubble. of the week. Coach your players up. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he's used to choking out, you know, 17-point leads against us multiple times. So, All right, let's recap the picks real quick, even though it was just two. But, like you said, quality over quantity. We're going to take Boston College plus six against Pittsburgh. And Notre Dame minus 21 against Florida State. Let's get get that that money. money. All right, guys. Next up, we have our resident analytics guru, Anthony Squints Lenahan. Great conversation with him on all things Tulsa game. So let's do that. All right, we're here with our favorite guest, Anthony Squints Lenahan, SB Nation writer, analytics guy. Uh, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, not not the most fun to do this after a loss, but hey. I think this is when your input is actually the best, though, because you can help us figure out kind of why, as opposed to just being a common fan and being like, oh, you know, we lost, we blew the game. We can really dive into uh, what happened and the reasoning behind it. Um, I know you put a lot of stuff out on Twitter this week. I think the big thing I saw with you, uh, you, the kind of big point you were hitting was the lack of throwing to the middle of the field. Do you want to start there? Yeah, I think we could go there. Uh, So in 2019, uh, PFF, uh, PFF underscore Seth, I'll give him the proper credit, put out a graph on Twitter about uh, UCF's route usage and where players run on the field, where the routes go on the field for UCF. And so basically it's a heat map with the dark blue being where UCF doesn't go often compared to the average in FBS. And then the, the red is where they do go. So mostly if you watch UCF, you know that they love to throw to the sidelines, short hitches on the outside, short intermediate, and then like to take deep shots. So that's, that's the area that's red on the map. And then to the middle, is pretty much just dark blue, especially the short middle from zero to five yards downfield. And then even the five to 15, 20 area is still heavily dark blue. Between the numbers and the hashes, somewhat blue with a little bit of white, which is average. Oh, that's pretty much from the slants and digs that they run. So basically, I thought Tulsa tried to pretty much just take this away from UCF. Not take it away. You mean they but, gar- they guarded the sidelines because they, they knew that's where we're going. Exactly. They, in my opinion, this is all just me kind of looking at general observation, not like X's and O's stuff, right? Exactly. I don't know the X's and O's exactly, so it's kind of what I took away from it. Um, it seems to make sense. You see a team that throws a lot to the sidelines, guard the sidelines, not rocket science. Yeah, they almost use it to the advantage. Like they they wanted to play UCF to the sidelines even though they knew that's where they wanted to go, but they made sure that they had the coverage there for when the throws come. So pretty much what I saw is a lot of inside technique played from the DBs and the linebackers, which means they're forcing to the outside. They're making a guy go to the sideline. So they pretty much did that the whole game. And like you could see plays where uh, Marlon Williams playing the inside slot on three by ones and the middle linebacker, who's not exactly covering Marlon, but he's kind of just, Marlin runs up to him and he kind of just turns him and makes him go to the sideline, run an out route, 
which is probably what Marlins actually supposed to do because in my opinion, their routes are a lot of option based based off coverage techniques and depth and stuff like that. Yeah. So pretty much that's what was going on in my opinion. And they took away the entire middle of the field. So why do you think we just couldn't really move the ball in the entire second half or score besides the fact that they were covering us well? You think it was a lack of adjustments or talent or what? Definitely not talent. I will. Uh, that cont- was. I wasn't trying to lead you into like. I'll a, continuously yeah. say that nobody in the AAC has as much talent at the skill positions as UCF, um, and I'll still agree with that even after a loss. Um, I think you just have. It's a lot of credit to Tulsa. I mean, you can't take anything away. Their DBs played physical. They kind of came in with the game plan. They stuck to it, and in my opinion, it was like they split the field up into thirds. So. It's a game of space, just like any other sport. You're trying to get into space. You're trying to take space away. So they split the field into thirds. It's a lot easier to cover two thirds than all three, a hundred percent of it. Right. Because you know they're not going. We're probably not going to the middle. So in my opinion, UCF had to do something to gain space, whether that's run guys through the middle. Which, if you saw Jacob Harris's the first touchdown he scored, they uh, Ryan O'Keefe was in the slot to his side in a two by one. And he ran a post, and I think Tulsa had two high safeties on that because it was like third and 13 or third and 12 or something like that. And there was literally four guys around O'Keefe just because he took up that space. He, the middle space, yeah. And it gave Harris the one-on-one on the corner route, which is what UCF wants to do. They know that Marlin, Harris, Robinson, they know they, they know these guys are better than they the can, guys guarding them. They can win the one-on-one matchups, exactly. But when you've got multiple people covering someone you can't make up for that with talent necessarily exactly so i think they had to win the space back whether that was the middle of the field or to win the sideline space back which i felt they did they went 12 personnel which is one running back two tight ends which they we almost never use they that. never use that, that but yeah. they they did it nine times outside the red zone they do use it in the red zone to kind of run and it gets the defenders thinking run it gets the defense thinking run you see two tight ends and you're going run so, kind of like a heavy set. So, speaking of that, though, what was up with our rushing attack? It really seemed like we could just never get going. And the only time we had big runs was really just Otis kind of making magic happen. Yeah, the touchdown run he had, I think he had 44 yards just because he made the guy miss in the hole. But I don't know. I, I don't really know much about run blocking schemes and stuff like that and how defenses line up in the front. But... Tulsa was running a three-man front with the wide nine technique, which is basically the one defensive end playing outside the last guy in the line of scrimmage. And they were lining him up towards the H-back side, which is normally Hescock when he was in. I don't know why they struggled with matchups. Who that Maybe they got confused who's supposed to block who and whatnot. But it kind of seemed that way last year in the Tulsa game and the Cincinnati game. And they kind of both run sim- similar defensive schemes. So The three down linemen. Yeah, they both run the 3-3-5. Three, three, so, I mean, I don't know if that's just yeah. <laughs> miss, missing um, assignments against that or getting confused. Because we've seen UCF's running game be excellent and have great blocking at times, too. Like the Temple game last year, they... The offensive line absolutely dominated that game. So it's, I don't think it's a question of talent on the offensive line or skill. I, I think it's just football's a hard game and you know matchups. These guys are young and not everything is just as easy as this guy's in front of me. I'm going to block them and whatnot. So I think it's kind of a lot of just 
kind of growing and learning as much as they can, as quick as they get. It's tough to deal with adversity too. You know, this is not something that we're used to, even though we had these three close losses last year. Um, we've never, we've never really blown a big lead like this. So I don't think we really knew what it looked kind of like. We're just like a deer in the headlights with hypo. And yeah, I, I don't really know, but it seems like we never really got the rushing attack going and he kept trying to force it and it's like we i'm looking at the box score 34 carries for 125 yards one of those was like a 49 yard touchdown so if you take that out we're averaging two yards a carry at some point you just have to i think just abandon the run game yeah i don't know i mean even even going 12 personnel like everything as i said it's so much about space so like when they were in 10 11 or empty which is either four wide receiver set three wide receiver set with the h back or tight end whatever you want to or five. And then empty is just everybody split out. Tulsa was only throwing five guys in the box on average, which is very little. It's almost baiting UCF to run. I mean, if you include Gabriel as a runner, which he pretty much is now, he'll keep it on zone reads when he when he has a time. It's seven against five. You got positive numbers which there all day. The number the numbers you want, and they just couldn't run with it. But when they went to twelve personnel, they brought six and a half guys in the box, which is a big big jump and even the the seventh guy if he was in the box or he was just outside of it to maybe take away the quick slant but it also brings the safeties in a little bit closer because somebody's got to guard the tight ends no matter UCF doesn't really use the tight ends in the passing game at all especially when they're not split out or in an h-back position so but you still have to cover it like you can't just not cover it right so that allowed UCF to kind of get some space back they threw the ball six out of the nine times that they were in 12 personnel outside the red zone and they just had a ton of success. They had the big bomb to Jalen Robinson and just a bunch of other short hitch routes that they weren't throwing against, what, throwing out of 10 and 11 personnel. What, what was the success rate passing out of 12 personnel? I don't have the success rate off the top of my head right here, but they averaged 1.045 expected points per play, which is an outrageous number. That's hints at the success. That's like, think, du- that's like double average. I think they us, were right? four, four for five passing the ball with the big bomb to Robinson. All four were successful passes. And then they had the 15-yard pass interference call against Jacob Harris where he ran a deep post over the middle and three guys just tackled him. I mean, 15-yard PIs, you'll take that any time. I mean, I think it really, really helped them kind of win back space on the outside. But they didn't go to it as often as you would have liked to see, I guess you could say, after having success in it. Yeah, no, I I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like the turnovers kind of masked our inability to move the ball, but we scored points still in the first half. And then when we didn't get the turnovers, we kind of showed flashes of greatness, but really still didn't do anything. I mean, we scored three points in the second half. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors, not just the offense. I mean, considering how much we were penalized, it makes it almost impossible to win. Yeah, so UCF on their, I think, 13 offensive penalties, they lost... 5.7 expected points, which is almost a touchdown. I mean, expected points is taken in time, score, field position, down and distance. So it's factoring pretty much everything in. The formula is way over my head, so I won't get into that. But it's a pretty reliable statistic and is probably the most accurate. So that's the game right there. We lost by eight and we lost six points just off of penalties. Um, And falling behind the chains is just crucial like it's just a big no-no so first and tens this is something i did in the offseason first and tens last year were converted into a first down to set it down so 
regardless if they got to second or third down. It was just overall conversion rate, 73% of the time. But when you get a false start or a delay a game or a five-yard penalty, it drops to 59% on first and 15s. That's a huge jump. And then all the way down to 52% on first and 20. So you're almost going 50-50 right there from a almost three out of four chance in the beginning. And when Yeah, when you put yourself in that big of a hole, it's tough to climb out of. And it also, it limits the playbook, too. When you're at first and 15, first and 20, they're probably going to think you're going to pass, too. Yeah, So when they're already taking away the deep ball and you need to get downfield to uh, get a first down even, it's, it's a little bit harder. So one of the things that was mentioned and you kind of responded to on Twitter was Dylan's time to throw. So a lot of people have mentioned getting pressure on Gabriel with the three-man rush is just, you can't win like that. So I chart QB snap time to pressure release time. So it's pretty much, if there's no pressure, it's when he releases the ball. And then pressure, I kind of, when Gabriel reacts to the pressure, so when he feels it, as best as I could judge. So there are only three plays that, against the non-blitz, Tulsa blitzed six times and they got pressure on five of them. UCF did not do very well against the blitz, but it was only six out of 46 dropbacks, I believe. So there was only three pressures out of, I think I had eight total against, not against the blitz on 36 snaps, which is, it's okay. It's not the best, but it's not the worst. When you're playing a three or four man rush, it's a three man rush. It's, you don't want pressure, but only three of them were under 2.93 seconds. And to put a little context behind this, UCF runs a a one-step drop every single time. It's shotgun look and Gabriel gets the ball and he's taking a one-step drop. He's not taking a three-step drop. So he's pretty much five or six yards behind the line of scrimmage compared to a three or five step drop where you might be seven or 10. And obviously the closer to the line of scrimmage you are, the less time there is to block. The ball is supposed to be out of his hands uh, before 2.91 seconds. If it's not open, that's not on Gabriel or it's not on the offensive line. Now, they only let up one sack and I think it was Collins got beat on the outside, but I had the the pressure time at, uh, I believe, like 3.001. Like he got beat, but he maintained enough and you could see Gabriel sitting in the pocket wanting to throw, but it just wasn't there and he didn't want to throw a pick. And you're saying that people are are uh, blaming the offensive line a little bit more than they should be for this, when in reality, these are really like coverage issues or good good defense yeah, yeah, by yeah. Tulsa. Yeah, you got to okay. give credit to Tulsa. I mean, so I went back and looked at it. So UCF this year and last year, I have all the release times on plays where there was no blitz, which we're kind of looking at here. They had. 283 of 368 throws were released in under 2.93 seconds. That's 77% of the time. So the ball is designed to be out of his hands by then. Mm -hmm. If it's not, while the line might get beat, they did their job. They gave him enough time. I think people see pressure and sacks and all, all automatically think line. But a lot of times sacks are on either A, the QB, or B, the coverage. The coverage sacks, yeah. All right, so we're not blaming the line on this, at least for um, the lack of being able to move the ball. Let's go back. All right, so what did you think about the end of the half when we had the ball, two timeouts, plenty of time left, and we just kind of threw the towel in, which is kind of unlike our aggressive style normally. What were your thoughts about that? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I believe I've seen Hypo call timeout to get the ball back with like 20 seconds left and a half, but... It was just interesting. I know the conditions weren't exactly the best, but UCF was coming off their two best drives of the game and probably the two best drives they had all game. They had a 10-play drive, which they missed a field goal, a 22-yard field goal, and then the 13-play drive right after that for a touchdown, 
which was, in my opinion, their one touchdown drive of the game. If you don't look at the turnovers and getting the ball at the 50 after the safety. Exactly. So it was very interesting. Um, we had momentum going and we didn't kind of use it. Although momentum is a weird thing because you can't measure it. It's kind of just. And not only that, when, as soon as you don't have it, like as soon as yeah. it goes away, then it's the opposite. It's kind so of it was like just interesting theory. to me. A team that prides itself on going fast and explosive plays to kind of just pack it in at halftime. I know they were getting the ball back at the end at the beginning of the second half, but it's a Belichick staple that you go, you go in and score into the half, and then you come back out and you score again, it, and the game's over. Exactly. Exactly. And, so speaking of that and the the whole going fast thing, this is kind of the uh, the opposite of that. On our second to last drive of the game, five plays burn two forty four off the clock. It's like we kind of stopped doing what we were doing. What were your overall thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And I, I, I'm not expecting an answer, but like it just kind compared to how we normally move fast. Especially being, you know, with time being the um, the most limited resource in the game, you would think that we would just go fast, and instead we burned up the whole play clock on almost every one of those plays. It just didn't seem normal, in my opinion. Yeah, it could be they were trying to kind of get a little pre-snap defense read, which they don't normally do because they were trying to get a better idea of what to run. Um, it could be they just were confused. I, I, I don't have an answer. Um, it could be a lot of things. It could also be like... It was they, definitely not normal though, right? No, no, okay. no. I mean, UCF snapped the ball like with 30 seconds or more on the play clock enough times this season to kind of... Which is insane if you think about it, which again, that can contribute to some of the penalties. The weather, definitely a factor. Like we're not blaming anyone for this. There's definitely a, a lot of stuff uh, a lot of contributing factors to uh, to this loss. But, you know, when you see a team that moves so fast and then they just don't move fast and, you know, there's only six minutes left, it's just kind of like, eh, what are we doing here? But uh, I don't know. Some other things. Um, any maybe fourth down calls that you didn't agree with? I don't know if I would say I didn't agree with them, but I think there's, uh, yeah, there's again, the right to uh, say that they could have gone for it instead of kicking. The fourth and four, which I mentioned before, and the ten play drive and with the missed field goal. Fourth and four at the ninety six yard line, so the Tulsa's four yard line. Fourth down, four yards to go is about a forty three percent conversion rate, which is not not good. Like you're not gonna sit there and say, "Oh, we're gonna get this more than we're not gonna get it." But what was the game situation though? I think that's what's most important here. So they were up by fourteen in the middle of the second quarter uh, at the opponent's four. So. It's fair. Like, you're like, kick the field goal, three-score game. The defense was playing pretty good. But I think the biggest takeaway you could look at is you got to kind of take advantage of being aggressive and situations. Like, you have to try and not play to the score almost because you never know when you're going to need that extra possession or you're going to need those extra points. Now, it's easy to say in hindsight that they should have went for it because they missed the kick. But Always is. That's, why, that's what but, makes it fun. No, but at the same time, though, it's not like we were really moving the ball that much. It's like, we might not get that many more red zone opportunities. Let's maybe take advantage yeah, of this. So the expected points of a successful conversion is a touchdown is obviously seven points. And where they were on the field, they had about expected points of 3.43. So the expected points of a successful conversion was 3.57. And I think the biggest thing to take away from this is when you kick field goals inside the 20 and you miss, the team, other team gets the ball at the their own 20 they don't get it at the spot of where you kick and that oh they don't that's a huge difference so tulsa started is that a college rule 
Uh, I believe that's NFL too. I didn't so even. T- I didn't even know that. That's so crazy. Tulsa started first and ten on their own twenty instead of if you don't get it. And I'm not. Obviously, you could throw a pick or a fumble or something. Hey, it gets we taken saw back, two but, safeties that game, though. The field, but, the, the field position definitely matters when you turn the ball over on the one. That's ex- a huge disadvantage for the offense. Expecting um, worst-case scenario is just an incomplete pass or they don't get it for it. So Tulsa would have first and 10, down 14 on their own four. That's a negative 0.54 expected point situation for Tulsa, which is extremely low. And it, it's a plus from a UCF perspective. So it's not the worst thing to turn the ball no, over exactly. on fourth down on the goal line and, is what you're saying. Somebody at Stats War on Twitter, I know a couple of you guys have followed him, uh, he put out a graph in the offseason of touchdown conversion percentage based on starting field position. From the 10 to the 20, it was about 10% of the time was touchdown conversion rate. You could just imagine how much that drops from you inside the 10 because you see how much the play calling changes and it has to change inside the 10 and how much more aggressive defenses are allowed to be. And you can't take risk really either. You're just trying to move the line of scrimmage a little bit to give you some breathing room. But if you if you look at the overall expected values, I had it at 1.84 uh, expected points for going for it and 1.7978 for kicking the field goal. So it's a complete toss up. You can't knock them, knock somebody for not going for it here. It's just obviously in hindsight, you look at it as it's a missed they, opportunity. They could have used the points, and I mean, I'm always playing on the aggressive side of things. I thought Tulsa should have went for it at the end of the game uh, when they kicked the field goal. So. I'm always thinking aggressive, but the one other one that was questionable was the fourth and seven at the at Tulsa forty three down by five with eleven minutes left. I feel like we've seen Hypel go for it on fourth and seven from like Pitts forty and other teams forty yard lines all the time. Um punting in the other team's territory, in my opinion, is just never unless it's like fourth and fifteen or something crazy conversion rate. We only ended up, he punted in the end zone, which yeah. is not necessarily, it's not like Heupel knew that was going to happen, no. but that's always a possibility when you punt in short distance. It's tough to, to cough and corner so, it. So we gained, what, 23 yards a game in the ball? So I looked at the average starting field position of where teams started on punts from the 43 last year, and it was the, their own 11-yard line, which is better. It's You're starting with a low a negative EPA on offense, which is never good for an offense. And I just mentioned before how little those turn into touchdown drives. But all in all, I use the 17-yard line as my downing distance just to be fair to both. Uh, the number is probably a little bit lower than what I have it at, but the conversion rate of going for uh, getting a fourth and seven is about 40.7%, and it adds almost one expected points if you get it. And what point in the game was this? Uh, 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter, down by five. And the defense was so banged up in the secondary that Tulsa was moving the ball pretty effectively, and, and you needed that. You needed a score at some point. You, ha- when you're losing and you're about to give up the ball, you had to gain a possession somewhere. You exactly. saw you saw it against Cincinnati where they kind of punted on a fourth down deep inside their own territory, which is completely understandable. But you needed that possession somewhere, and to try and kick an onside kick is so low percentage to get. So you need to gain the possession somewhere. I mean, they thankfully, I think they held them on that drive and then forced the field goal on the drive after. So they had the chances to do it, but you just never know the situation. You got to kind of play expecting the worst to happen against you. Especially, I mean, when nothing's going well, the last thing you want to do is give the ball back to the other team when you're down because you're really out of control at that point. Uh, So I, I agree with you. And again, 
We always say this. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Obviously, you know, they go for it on these two four downs and don't get it. Game's probably more lopsided. Yeah. And then we're going to be, I at least me, I'll probably be sitting here being like, why did Hypo do this? He cost us the game. So take everything with a grain of salt, but at least uh, Squints has the numbers to kind of back up his stuff. Yeah, the fourth and four, I completely understand kicking the field goal. Uh, the fourth and seven, I think, was a little just because you're losing and it's the fourth quarter and you're in opponent territory. I think that's a little bit more. The and de- and the, we've seen Hypo go for it in that situation before. And right? the defense is tired. We're not really stopping them. I mean, it almost felt like that point when you're down a score and not really doing anything, if you give them the ball back, there's a chance it's going to be a two-score game, and then you really won't have a shot. So I, I agree. I think we should have, you know, we should do whatever we can to uh, to keep possession at that point. But, you know, on the flip side, we weren't really doing anything ever, so we could have easily just given it up. But at the same time, it was only 23-yard difference, so. Uh, I don't think it. I don't think it affected the game in the end, either way. Unless I got it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anything else you want to touch on? Final thoughts? Uh no. I mean, penalties are obviously a killer. Uh, just they just hurt you. Falling behind the change is just so bad, and it could kind of derail the offense and make the offense look bad. To me, it was almost like UCF needed to get ahead in the change just every time. Like on first down, get five or six yards, take a little, and so a, we a little, the, a little now screen to the outside, which they do so much, and it just seemed like they didn't do it that often this game. Uh, they ran one like early on, extremely quick hurry up, where Tulsa was completely out of position, and the guy just jumped the route, and Gabriel had to throw it away. And then we kind of didn't really see it that much after that. We saw a couple. Short hitches out of 12 personnel to Marlin toward when they were moving. They got some drives going and it gained eight yards here and there. And it kind of put them in second and two situations. And that's where I feel like UCF really needed to be. Because then we can take our deep shot and still have a pretty easy conversion for first down there. Exactly. That's the whole premise of our offense. And it works really well when it works. But the problem is, is we get derailed. The penalties piling on throws all that off. It not just throws off you know, having easy yardage, but it throws off the tempo and the rhythm. It gives the defense a chance to rest a little bit and uh, and line up. And, you know, it's just kind of a whole culmination. But again, that's, you know, part of being a coach is I think you should be able to adjust on the fly. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look at what LSU did last year, I keep using this example, but, like, they were so good and, like, nobody had an answer for them because they did so many different things and they could attack so many different coverages, whether they went tight bunches on the outside running rub routes, leaking out a layer out of the backfield to get matchups against linebackers, using the tight end split out to get one-on-one matchups. A layer like, was just unfair. They Him just, against linebackers is just not fair. They just had so many an answer for every single thing, it seemed like. They got shut down, I believe, the first quarter of the SEC championship or – Maybe it might have been against Clemson. You're like, oh, no, like somebody finally found the answer. I think it was Venables finally found the answer for Joe Brady. And then it was. next were, thing you know, they Clemson. put up 40 points. It was like that. Joe Brady is just a genius. It's so, yeah. it's so easy to say because they were so good and they had so much talent. The, but the talent when factor, they played yeah. UCF in the Fiesta Bowl, like they had most of that talent on offense there yeah. and that whole season. And they did not, because of the system, in my opinion, they were more pro style without brady there and once they evolved and brady came with an answer for everything like well you know the lsu game that's actually interesting that you bring that up because that reminds me of another time where it felt like you were running up to 
I think we had like three and outs that were like 15 seconds each. And that's another game where I felt like we just couldn't adjust because our guys weren't beating the DBs one-on-one, which is what the whole offense is premised off, which is good because most of the time we can we can do that and, and trample teams. But when it doesn't work, it seems like we don't have an answer for it. And that's kind of what the Tulsa game felt like. Because really, like you said, we had one good drive where we drove the whole field and scored a touchdown. Everything else was turnovers and, and field position and stuff. Yeah, and it's just, to me, it's like it happened against Tulsa last year, too. The same, pretty much the same defense. I was looking at a little bit of it. Tulsa seemed to be a lot more like cover two. UCF was able to attack the sidelines a little bit last year. But it seems like they, they might have looked at that and how UCF kind of used the sideline against the cover two last year. And then Cincinnati kind of runs similar style defense to what Tulsa did. And that's the other defense that UCF struggled with last year. I mean, there's clearly, there's a recipe to beat us. It's out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just like. Didn't these, Pitt these, run something similar too? Yeah. They all kind of ran the three, three, five with kind of the same linebacker techniques and stuff like that. So, and I mean, I think the way to beat that is to figure out how to run the ball. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, I, I know that sounds like it's like a stupid boneheaded answer because you've got the numbers, but we should have figured out how to run the ball. And I think maybe that's why we couldn't stop handing the ball off. But at a certain point, you kind of have to give up on that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And again, a lot of this stuff could be X's and O's. It could be talent. It could be coaching. We, we don't know. Uh, I'm just a fan. You're just a, an analytics guy. Yeah. I mean, my stuff is all off of what I kind of, it's kind of, num- it's numbers based and observation kind of looked at. I don't know. Like if somebody completely understands X's and O's and wants to tell me I'm completely wrong, I'll completely agree with that. I said that on social media, like I'm not <laughs> sitting here and saying like, that's exactly what happened. It's just kind of look what happened. And it's the area that UCF doesn't utilize, which is the PFF stuff is all film. Like they're watching every game. Like everything is film based. So there's a whole field, and if you automatically just don't use the middle of the field, it makes it they don't have to cover that because it doesn't exist. So then they can cover us more on the places we do go. Uh, so I agree. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens going forward. I mean, I don't know how much of this stuff like. Defensive teams can't just line up and like teams that don't run a three three five can't line up and just do what Tulsa did because you just you just can't learn that in a week from a football perspective like that's just way too much. So, oh, so, so now you do know about football? No, I'm just messing. <laughs> no, I know uh, what you're yeah. saying. I mean, it's not like college teams aren't like the Patriots; they can't just change their identity yeah, every week. Like you see it when backups come in in the secondary. For the most part, when young guys come in, like it's just so much knowledge and getting used to and figuring everything out, kind of and learning that. It's just you just can't do it in a week. I definitely agree. Another thing too, we got to mention again, injuries a huge factor. I mean, our team is decimated. All of our best players are either banged up or out, and if that's not the case, I personally think this is due to a, you know a lack of preseason and summer camps and stuff. But if that's not the case, we're probably not having this conversation here. We're probably like, oh, you know, we played sloppy against Tulsa, but we won. Uh, let's talk about Memphis next week. So there's a lot of contributing factors. We're not blaming anyone necessarily. It is what it is. Uh, it stinks and you could point fingers in a million directions, but at the end of the day, we can't change it. We still control our own destiny. Kind of. I think, I mean, when you lose your two safeties who are arguably two of your better players on defense, like it's going to be hard. Uh, the running back, 
Uh, I know the running backs were banged up, but it doesn't matter who was at running back in that game. They weren't. They didn't have a chance. They, at, yeah. There's only so much a running back can do. When you're getting hit if, by, yeah. behind the line of scrimmage, I mean, it doesn't and really matter. It'd be nice to have Trey Nixon out there, definitely, so they could run with the four guys that they wanted in Robinson, Marlin, Nixon, and Harris. But, I mean, and then Cordell getting uh, the targeting oh. killed because he, he's been playing pretty good. Did did Ryan O'Keefe get hurt, too? Because I didn't see him on the field in the second half. Um, And he was playing pretty good. I'm honestly not sure. He had a couple nice – he had a one really nice fingertip snag. But, no, the targeting thing, too. I mean, I guess in the letter of the law, it was targeting, but yeah, I, I hate. I mean, give them a fifteen-yard penalty, but like, it's not an ejection. Ejecting these guys, these kids who work like you get one game a week. You work so hard to prepare for and it's, for one opponent, and like, it's not like he's flying in on a defenseless receiver, head first, like projectile launching himself. Dude's putting his head down to to brace himself for yeah, a hit. It's I, like instincts. I think they could kind of change it to where. Both are a 15-yard penalty. Maybe maybe you get two of a, a minor version and you're ejected or or one of a serious. Because there are some targeted calls that are warranted ejection. It's like, like the old face mask rule where there was the one where it's like an yeah. incident where you slip and let go. And then there's the one where you like drag the guy by his face mask and slam him into the ground. That's the bad one. And I, I think there should be a couple levels to it. But again, I don't think we win the game if he doesn't get ejected. That's just one thing on a million different things that went wrong for us and it seemed like everything went wrong yeah and Cordell uh Johnson who came in when he got ejected and O'Keefe are all they're all the younger receivers that I think we're going to start seeing next year when when, the future for you so I think like them getting valuable reps and they have the first two games it's not like they were just thrown into the fire all three guys played in the first two games to some degree um so it's like you want to see those guys get reps, and they play pretty good. Johnson made a great catch on the uh, the last drive, the diving catch that got reviewed that gave UCF a first down yeah, on third that, and ten. That one too, yeah. And he, so, had a, I mean, he had a nice catch, I think, on one of his first plays. I think it was like a slant or something like that, where the ball is a little bit high. That was that was the ejection. Oh, that yeah. was okay. So Cordell's he he's he's played pretty good too. He's had a couple nice catches and produced when he's gotten looks. I might I, I might I, you saw these. There's always weird. Oh, actually, well, there's like. I see a guy in 13, I'm like, yeah. wait, that's, that's smaller than Gabe Davis. So It's, 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 it's like, like 13, 17, like the numbers are yeah. kind of... But Flash's number... So it's weird. So Flash is like the second or the third most... Uh, he has the third most experience now, and that's just because he's second behind Harris and uh, and Marlon. Yeah, he's, he's been playing really good. He ran a, a sluggo route for a deep ball, and they were playing inside technique on him, and he just completely... When he faked the slant, he took the step in, he just completely turned around a DB and burned him. That was love to see it. You know the talent's there, the pieces are there, the experience isn't. But moving forward, you know we we win the rest of the games. We can still win the conference. You know I have a feeling that Tulsa's probably gonna not run the table in the conference, and maybe I think they'll lose at least one game. So then there'll be a point where if they lose a second game, we could still get the home field. I know I'm getting way ahead of myself. Because it'd just be nice to have the conference championship game at home. You just want to go to the game. I'm going to go either way. <laughs> no, but I mean, look, there's we're not giving up on the season. Uh, definitely a lot of positive takeaways. And, you know, if we change any one of the long list of things that went wrong, any one of them, we probably end up winning that game. So I think there's definitely a lot of positives to, to take away. Yeah, and there's learning for, I mean, these guys are just going to keep getting better. 
especially the line is young. Like they're just going to keep learning from everything as you get older, as you move on through the season. I mean, coaching's going to learn from mistakes. That too. Uh, and I, I hope, like I said, you know, I, I'm the biggest, obviously a very vocal critic of Josh Heupel, but at the end of the day, I don't want him to do bad. I want him to learn from this. I want him to be a better coach. Yeah. These guys, it's their job. It's like, we have bad days at our jobs. Like you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. Like they're, they're not as good as they are at what they do. They're not, you're not going to be a hundred percent perfect. I mean, Saban loses games. Bill Belichick loses games. Like everybody loses games. And you got to see what went wrong and try to. Everyone makes mistakes. It's about learning from it and trying to avoid that going forward. And we got a lot of good things to look forward to by week two. Always helps. I think these practices are probably going to not be that fun this next week, but that's good. Everyone gets time to reflect, the coaching, the players, everyone. And uh, tough road game at Memphis, too. Yeah, they look pretty good against SMU. They they didn't play in like a month before this week, and they came back, and they were very bad in the first quarter. I think they went down 24-3, and then they came back and should have won the game. I think it was 27-27 late, like their defense – Against a really good uh, SMU offense, they have Bouchelle as their quarterback, who's the old Texas, Texas guy. Yeah. So I mean, that's not going to be an easy game. So buckle up, people. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> they, they look good. I, their defense played good, and their offense is always. I mean, they got Brady White for what feels like the tenth season he's been there. Demonte Cox, he's still there, and Sean Dykes, their tight end, is. An absolute beast. So they got they got playmakers on offense, and I'm sure they've got some other good running back that like they I've, do. I've used this joke a million times. But they're going to rush for 200 yards in the first half, and we'll still probably win the game because uh, that's what Memphis does. And you know their home field advantage is big. Uh, they just released that they're up to um, I think 12,000 fans, which I think is how many were at the game last year. And I swear to God, I couldn't hear the person next to me. That place gets loud. I don't know if it's like the acoustics or if it's just all the fans are actually loud, but that is not an easy place to play in. And, uh, yeah, you know, road games, there's just a lot of factors right now. So Yeah, I feel like the limited fans might even make it more, like, eerie. It's definitely not going to be an easy game, but it'll be a good one. I'll be there, so looking forward to it. Um, Anyway, any final thoughts or? No, I think that's it. I mean, just obviously this team's extremely talented still. It's going to be – it's still a ton of fun to watch when they're clicking and Gabriel, people forget he's still a sophomore. I mean, still got two more years of this kid. So him, be- get, him getting better is only good for UCF. The best is definitely yet to come. I can't wait till everything clicks for like an entire season. But, you know, growing pains. What can I say? Anyway, dude, like always, thank you so much for giving us all your insight on this. Appreciate have, having you on. Thank you. All right. Last up, Moo's Mailbag. Thank you guys for all your questions. Moo's Mailbag, sponsored by First Watch. First up, MD Night 2016. If DG keeps throwing for 350-plus yards a game, completing 65 and higher percent, and averaging over 400 yards of offense a game, does he get a Heisman invite? Well, I unfortunately, I don't think they're going to have an in-person Heisman uh, trophy presentation this year, so no one asked I'm going to say no. He doesn't get a Heisman invite. He doesn't have to, though. Really, you know, KZ put up incredible numbers. Still finished, I think, seventh in the nation in Heisman votes. I mean, does he get an invite? Like, is he in the top five? I guess 
if the season ended today, probably he's on the borderline. All right, so it depends on a couple things. One, you didn't mention touchdowns. He's got to have at least, I'd say, like 40. Oh, well, I guess it's a short season. 40 touchdowns will probably get you up there in like the top, top few, but it more depends on UCF success. If we don't win the rest of our games, it doesn't matter if he probably has 50 touchdowns. He's not in the conversation. Lamar Jackson, after he won the Heisman that one year, had very similar sets and didn't even get an invite because, one, he had already won it, but, two, Louisville stunk. So a, a lot of it has to do with the success of your school. So right now, I think DG getting an invite has more to do with UCF winning the rest of their games than it does his actual individual performance. Mackenzie Milton got more Heisman votes the year he got hurt, and he had like half the touchdowns than 2017, and that's just because we had all the hype going into that year. A lot of it has to do with the team and not the player, unfortunately. Well said. All right, this next question is from Adam Tara. A hypothetical question. Do we win that game if it's a true sellout a la Cincinnati 2018? Yeah, we talked about this earlier. 100%. We get, you know, a couple crowd assists. You know, we've got, you know, those random TV timeouts when the, the sideline just gets like crunk and then the whole crowd gets into it and everyone gets hyped up. We didn't yep. have it. We didn't have any of those. Those are always good, I feel like, for, you know, some momentum. Yeah, it just 100%. You know what? I don't blame anyone but COVID. COVID is the reason we lost that game. Because if we had a crowd, it wouldn't have happened. T- 21 games in a row with 15,000 or more fans. Numbers don't lie. What's it going to be? <laughs> what, I feel like what's it going to be, you know, if we lose with 15,000 fans, it'll be like, yo, we're 20. We're still 22-0 and 0 on Saturday 3.30 games. On even numbers. Or something like that. Calendar days. <laughs> When the groundhog doesn't see a shadow. Oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Next up, uh, I've got one from Alex Bitter. Do you think Hype will be here next year? If not, do you think it's because he gets fired or because a P5 hires him away? The tale of two cities there. Yeah. No, I think I think he's going to be here next year no matter what. I don't think he's going to leave. I don't think he's going to get fired. But coaches, I mean... He's got to do real bad to get fired. Let's be real, guys. When I said we should fire our hype, one, I didn't think anyone was going to listen. But two, it's not actually a possibility. Because the alternative is, first of all, we lose all our recruiting momentum. Not that great this year. Only two recruits from Florida. But that's a whole other story. But, I mean, you got to rebuild. Look at FSU right now. They fired Taggart. They got what they wanted. Norvell. And now he's just dealing with the pieces, trying to pick it up. And it's not pretty. We were very, very spoiled because Hypo inherited the perfect season team. And we actually technically regressed by losing LSU, but he still had, he was dealt a really good hand. Normally when coaches leave, I mean, they're left with, you know, smithereens and it's not easy. So the transition period is something you've got to be willing to sacrifice when you get rid of a coach. I don't think that's what's best for our program and for our student-athletes right now, at least. All right, this next question is from Jason Clary. True or false, Josh Heupel slash Randy Shannon have been mediocre recruiters. Next question. That's not true or false. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, 
George was never a good recruiter, but he made he got the best out of his talent. I think officially, me and you are both on the same page here. We don't look too into the recruiting stuff. I mean, no one made a big deal about Gabe Davis or Marlon Williams or Mackenzie Milton or really most of our guys that have done well. When have we ever had like a really good recruit? Cordarian, maybe Rich- Cordarian Richardson. Snow- Maybe Dredrick Snelson. Snelson was big. That's all I can really but, think of. More time, more often than not, that we have more players that do better than their star rating than like four star blue chip type guys or whatever. That Bortles. Yeah, yeah Bortles had offers from hundreds of schools. No, he didn't. Yeah, they were, it was I, us, and I think they wanted so, to play tight end at Boston College or something yeah. stupid. <laughs> like I really don't care about star ratings or, or I mean, any of that. I, I, I care, but look, here's another thing too, is that recruiting matters less this year because everyone gets an extra year. You guys forget. Otis can stay. Everyone can stay. This is a free year. And that's why, free. you know, guys like Kalia Davis, this is kind of why I think he sat out because this year really doesn't help anyone and it doesn't hurt anyone to sit out. So this year at the at the end of the day, isn't really going to count that much unless we win a, a major bowl game. Then it counts officially. But right now it doesn't really count that much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, last question, I think, from Chris Duffner. How have we still not gotten an update on injuries and waivers? Uh, that's a great question, Chris, and I'm definitely not the person to answer that. <laughs> I know we had a ton of injuries that we talked about earlier in the show and i just hope that everybody's okay i haven't heard anything of you it's um it's you know it's like the art of war or whatever you're not trying to show your hand to the enemy and you know having close practices giving very vague injury updates like they do in the nhl and they're like oh that guy like breaks his leg and they're like oh uh d smith lower body injury or upper body day, injury day to day Dated, yeah, they. But it's true though. I mean, why give your opponent an extra edge? Like, if Trey Nixon was actually coming back, they might game plan a little different. And if we're not required to give updates on him, why would we? I know it's annoying as a fan base, but at the end of the day, what we know about our players doesn't affect the game. It just affects like our fandom. And as far as the waivers, again, we'll know when we know. It stinks. It seems like the P five schools all get their guys pushed through. Who the heck knows? I mean, going back to Parker Boudreaux, when I think he, he really got a raw deal not getting his waiver, and then there's guys like, um, what's that little Jits name in Miami, the quarterback that, you know, I know you Derek know. Derek King. No, no, no. I like Derek King. Uh, the guy oh, that went. Tate Martell. Yes, Tate Martell. Like, that guy got his thing, and, like, he was just not good enough. And for whatever reason, got a waiver. So, again, I try not to get too hung up on things I can't control which actually is nothing, so that's not true. But I, <laughs> the things like the injuries and the waivers, again, if Hype wants to tell us, he'll tell us, and that, that means we're probably not going to get any any information. All, all three phases, right? All three phases. All right, I think that's the last question. Let's wrap this up. Bye week this week, can't lose. That's good. Memphis next week, that will be fun. I hope it doesn't rain. Like I said, positive news this week. KZ really sounds like he's close to getting 
back on the field in pads for a game. I know he's been practicing in pads. It sounds like he's like he's on the last, like the last, I don't know, like the, the, the final checkpoint or whatever. I mean, once you're practicing in pads, the only thing you have left is to get game cleared. Definitely some positive news with that. Be sure, uh, if you're listening right now, subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, everything. Go to First Watch. Really like that carrot drink. Uh, Moo, you got anything else? No, I just want everybody to have a... Uh, goodbye week. A goodbye week. Watch some other games. Uh, maybe throw a little money down on some uh, Boston College and Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Maybe we'll get a gift and like Florida will lose this week or something. Ooh, that'd be nice. That's what we really need to shake it up right now. I still think we're the best team in Florida. We won't know until the Peach Bowl, which we could, hey. still, we could still make. So stranger things have happened. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, like, retweet. Thank you guys. Good night. Charge on. Sure.